Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash S-E-Y. This activity is supported by an educational grant from AbbVie. Welcome to this Pure Voice on-demand activity based on a recent live event. This video-based activity comprises three presentations with a panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. So I'm Ross Kamich. I'm from the University of Colorado, and um, I'm just going to do a few little housekeeping items here. Uh, this is mastering MET and CMET, and you understand why one is italicized and one says CMET in a second, and recognizing their role in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. All right, so uh, I'm going to hand over to Dr. Jonathan Goldman from UCLA, who is going to talk about the many facets of MET, CMET, and as a primary non-small cell lung cancer vulnerability. Jonathan. Thank you very much. Uh, great. Um, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. We've understood MET as a, as a marker, as a biomarker, for about 30 years, only about 20 years, really, as a proto-oncogene. And we are really trying to uncover all the different facets of that, all the different ways that MET can be driving cancer and uh, therefore be targeted for therapy. So we'll talk some about the biology and biomarkers. We'll then review uh, the three ways that we're, we're going to separate these uh, different oncogenic properties, skipping mutations, amplification, and overexpression. And all along the way, we'll be talking about testing, which can be quite complex. When we look at these different subsets of MET abnormalities, uh, there's different ways to, to think of them. There's some overlap, but, but mostly non-overlap. Um, the skipping mutations are a relatively small subset, 3 to 4% in that same you know, uh, range as ALK, for example. Importantly, there's this interesting um, relationship with the sarcomatoid histology, a rare histology where you'll uh, often see it. Um, even though that is a, a rare group. Amplifications really depends a lot on how you define amplification, so it can range from 1% to almost up to 10%. Um, overexpression, though, is clearly the largest group, 25 to 30%. So the biology is here. Um, a lot to see on a slide. Um, this is on chromosome 7. It's a heterodimer with a semi-domain for the receptor for hepatocyte growth factor or scatter factor. Uh, it's ligand, there's a juxtamembrane domain and a tyrosine kinase catalytic domain. Activation and homodimerization leads to um, downstream signals and proliferation, survival and motility through some of the same pathways uh, we're well aware of, uh, RAS, RAF, MEC, um, AP, AKT, etc. One of the, uh, I want to highlight to you just under the membrane, the CBL uh, that you see, that's the Sybil blind, binding pocket, binding site. And this is where uh, Sybil will come and identify the, the protein for degradation. And that will be important in the exon 14 skipping um, pathway. So, um, Dividing our three groups of, of uh, oncogenic potential, as I said, we're going to be talking a lot about testing because I think that's where some of the confusion can come in. You're not going to read all of this slide, obviously, but just to give you a, a preview of what we're going to be covering. 
So exon 14 skipping mutations are uh, very much in people's minds these days due to uh, the recent approvals of, of targeting agents. Some of these early reports, including this a, a patient of mine that I reported uh, from 2015, uh, a 76-year-old woman, former smoker with squamous cell uh, carcinoma. Interesting, many of our driving mutations are not in squamous cell. And NGS testing showed a MET-D1010H mutation. Patient was started on crizotinib that left upper lobe mass as well as the right hip metastasis, responded with a, a PET-CR that was durable beyond a year. And this is the, our best understanding of this relatively complicated uh, physiology of, this, of these mutations. So the normal splicing is at the top there. And with normal splicing, exon 14 is, is maintained and it ends up between exon 13, 14, and 15. And as I said, that's the site where Sybil is. And if you lose, uh, or with Sybil, that protein can be marked for degradation. In the aberrant splicing, uh, exon 14 is skipped. Many different mutations, this is an important fact, many different mutations can lead to skipping of exon 14. When exon 14 is not in the final protein, there, there's no uh, binding site for Sybil. Those proteins, uh, these proteins cannot be marked for degradation, and that leads to the oncogenic pathway. So here's sort of a, some further description of that. These can be point mutations, insertions, or deletions. You can even delete the whole uh, exon 14, leading to the removal of that Sybil binding site at Y1003 in the final protein. Um, and there I, I list the T1010 mutation we just talked about. The demographics of these patients are a little bit different than our other driving mutations, a little bit older, 70 to 75. There's no gender preference. Uh, there are smokers and non-smokers at about equal prevalence. Most are adenocarcinoma, but about 10% are squamous cell, and I told you those rare sarcomatoid variants, and about 10% have brain metastases. When we identified this, and and we'll talk some about the difficulties of testing, it was hoped that there might be a good screening test. And IHC left out as perhaps a, a quick, rapid way to identify these patients, but the sensitivity and specificity were, were clearly inadequate. So then we moved to typical DNA testing. And as I said, there's many different mutations that could lead to skipping of exon 14, either at the beginning or the end of the exon uh, and um, and really, developing all of the primers has been difficult. Uh, and there's no utility in remembering all those mutations, it's, and so it was hard to develop a test. And Dr. Kamich and others have, de have demonstrated that if you have only DNA-based testing, you're going to miss uh, up to about half of your exon 14 skipping mutations. So RNA testing, in addition to DNA testing, is probably our best approach. Here, you don't have to find the mutation that led to exon 14 skipping. You just show that in the final protein, there's no exon 14, or the final RNA leading to the protein, there's no exon 14. All of this study and understanding has led to the approval of two MET TKIs, capmatinib and tapotinib, in many ways uh, more similar than different. The uh, capmatinib response rate was 40% uh, in the patients who had previous treatment. Interestingly, that was boosted quite a bit to almost 70% in the patients that were not treated. Similarly, PFS had that differential with more than a year PFS in the untreated patients. The previously pre treated patients 
somewhat disappointing 5.4 months of PFS, but still significant clinically. Tapotinib, interestingly, did not show that difference in prior therapies, but a lot of the numbers are similar, a response rate of just under 50% and a PFS of eight and a half months. Toxicities are really, uh, as a class, somewhat similar. Peripheral edema is common, uh, occasionally high-grade, likely related hypoalbuminemia, nausea and vomiting, uh, elevated creatinine level. uh, I find this interesting. Some of that is due to uh, changes in in the tubular excretion of creatinine and not really a change in kidney function, so testing a cystatin C can be helpful. Uh, usually not clinically significant AST, ALT, amylase, and lipase elevations, uh, but they can absolutely be seen. We split up these TKIs uh, into two types, type 1 um, binding uh, the active version of MET at a, at a specific, uh, at the ATB, ATP binding site, crizotinib, our, our first MET inhibitor, uh, but kebatinib, tapotinib are, are binding at that similar site, savalitinib, a drug in development, similar site. Type 2 bind also near the ATP pocket, but a slightly different location, and that does affect some of the resistance pathways we'll talk about later. So the resistance um, is not, I would say, not fully demonstrated and understood at this point. This was a report of only 20 patients, but it really teaches us quite a lot. We learned that about a third are due to uh, resistance mutations, including... um, uh, what I've highlighted on the right there, 1228 and 1230, these are uh, some of the hotspot points for mutations leading to resistance primarily to the type 1 uh, inhibitors. And almost half have other parallel pathways uh, upregulation that leads to resistance, and a quarter resistance pathways are not really well known. And this data was to put together on this resistance table on the right, and you can see that particularly the 1228 and 1230 mutations lead to resist pretty significant resistance to the type 1 um, inhibitors, and that's led to some trials looking at the type 2 inhibitor, cabozantinib, in that setting. Now going on to the second type of uh, driver effect that MET can have, MET amplification. A lot of the challenges have been due to our our difficulty identifying who do we want to call MET amplified. The earlier uh, studies with crizotinib that Dr. Kamich uh, led uh, included looking at patients with different levels of MET amplification. These were looking at ratios between MET signals and the um, uh, CEP7 as a as a um, as a way to to normalize uh, and to avoid just uh, over uh, increased chromosome copy, I should say. Um, and here you see that really the it's in the high level amplified that you see significant benefit. Uh, Kamanib in their report also looked at uh, at amplification. Here they had some trouble, I would say, defining what they wanted to call amplification. They used a high uh, gene copy number. They did see some uh, activity, about 40%. It didn't meet their pre-specified numbers for further development, but also an active drug. Neither is approved, I should say, for amplification. 
here's uh, some of the different ways that we can look at testing for amplification. Uh, these are, um, this is looking with fish. You can have either um, increased uh, sig green signal here compared to red. You can also have clumping and cluster formation. Uh, but on the far right, you see polysomy, uh, which perhaps may not mean quite the same uh, as far as gene-specific amplification. In many ways, you can learn a lot of lessons from the ways we've looked at, uh, at HER2 amplification and that it's really uh, the ratio that perhaps might be the most meaningful. There's some um, overlap in the way that we uh, test for, by FISH or, um, or NGS. I, I would say that neither tends to be perfect in my experience. This was, um, you know, in small numbers of patients able to identify uh, patients for, with amplification, both by FISH, by NGS, but not always uh, con uh, with concurrence. C circulating uh, tumor DNA is a technique that many of us are using more and more. Uh, some interesting studies looking at at what level of ctDNA expression or um, overexpression uh, do you see the dropout of other driving mutations? So a, a very interesting kind of logic game there to show when do we think that ctDNA is showing us that it's met that's driving. And here uh, the numbers end up being lower, but about two and a half times uh, the other um, uh, the background, what you, what you decide your background level is, uh, suggests that you have a driver of MET. So now we'll move to MET overexpression. As I said, for about 30 years, we've understood that MET overexpression can identify a poor prognostic group, either post-surgically or in the metastatic setting. This has been uh, overexpression by immunohistochemistry with the brown markers, and I have some of some H uh, and uh, E slides, or sorry, slides with uh, with staining there. The um, there's some correlation between amplification and overexpression, but not perfect. Because of the identification of, a, of this marker and its association with poor prognosis, just like HER2, this was used as perhaps a target for antibodies going back um, really a couple decades now. Onertuzumab um, and uh, amoebatuzumab were both studied as, uh, as uh, potential treatments, uh, both alone and amoebatuzumab was looked at in combinations, partly due to study design, probably neither of these uh, led to successful development. There are some bispecific antibodies, some of these very familiar, amivantamab is approved uh, for, certain, for EGFR subgroups, and others are in development. And now, going forward, we're mostly going to talk about the antibody drug conjugates. Uh, here you have the ability to use this metover expression as a targeting device to de deliver the um, toxin. We'll talk mostly about Teliso-V, Teliso-Tuzumab-Vodotin, where MMAE is the toxin. The other drugs are earlier in development and will likely get uh, further information in the coming years. So this is the phase one uh, and 1B development of Teliso-V with dose escalation. Um, identifying a recommended phase two dose. There was concurrently some combination studies with erlotinib, later led to other EGFR combinations, and Dr. Santos will be focusing on them. Waterfall plot at the top there um, shows that there's a group of patients doing quite well. 
uh, and um, response rates are certainly in a meaningful range. Um, toxicities on the right, many of these are the met toxicities that we talked about with TKIs, peripheral edema, hypoalbuminemia, uh, and AST, ALT elevations. Uh, and we add to it because of the MMEE toxin, we have peripheral neuropathy as an additional toxicity with telesotuzumab. Some additional studies that I just wanted to highlight before I finish, um, looking in MET amplified, so going back to amplification, but MET amplified non-small cell lung cancer. This is a small group of 10 patients that were, that were selected from the previous trial post hoc and, and showed that 80% response rate, very early but encouraging. And you see with the swimmers, uh, sorry, with the spider plot that, that these do look to be durable. So in summary, I'm just uh, to remind you, we're looking at the same proto-oncogene, but in different settings, uh, different prevalences, and different uh, means of targeting. Exon 14 skipping mutations uh, and amplification are relatively rare. Uh, overexpression, a quarter to a third of patients, and may afford a good um, utility of an antibody drug conjugate told you that the testing is rather complicated. We covered that as we went. Um, the uh, exon 14 combination of DNA and RNA is preferred amplification. Uh, FISH is perhaps the gold standard, but moving to NGS either from uh, tissue or circulating tumor DNA is often used now. And overexpression can only be identified by immunohistochemistry. Welcome to this Pure Voice On Demand activity based on a recent live event. This video-based activity comprises three presentations with a panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Our next speaker is Eddie Santos uh, from Florida, who's going to talk about MET as a secondary vulnerability. Dr. Santos. Thank you. So uh, I'm going to go on the clinical part. Um, basically, um, the importance of MET uh, is in this uh, topic, uh, which is an unmet uh, need that we have right now. And those are patients that have EGFR mutant, and they start to progress, and then what to do. So how to overcome osimertinib resistance? Uh, part of them is because of this bypass uh, track, which is uh, MET amplification, which in this specific scenario is like 15%, although the numbers are a little bit uh, higher. So just the background is when we treat patients with EGFR mutation, first or second generation TKI, the amplification or the issue with MED is coming around 10%, but it's going to be higher when we use third generation TKI because the inhibition is uh, a, a more potent. Then um, once we treat patients with EGFR TKI, why uh, those patients uh, stop to respond? Well, there are several uh, mechanisms. One of them is acquired resistance in the EGFR pathway. Uh, one of them uh, is the, the T790N mutation. If we use first or second generation EGFR TKI, the bypass track that we have met amplification, HER2 uh, amplification, acquired translocation, that could be ALK, ROS, RET, uh, and then also histological shift. There are some transformation that could be squamous cell carcinoma or a small cell lung cancer. So uh, MET amplification is the topic for tonight. And uh, so I want to start to uh, give you where we are uh, these days. Uh, so one of them is amivantanib, like lacertinib, 
And then you can see uh, there, uh, amivantanab uh, is basically a bi-specific uh, monoclonal antibody that targets both EGFR and MET. And then lastertin is a third-generation TKI who has good penetration in the CNS, target EGFR mutant, also T790M, and um, so basically those two. So they have combined uh, these uh, two drugs. And from that crystallis, we can see that the overall response rate here is 36%. Uh, the safety profile is basically what we expect for amivantanab, which is going to be infusion-related reaction. And for lacertinib, uh, EFRTKI is going to be RASH, Paroniki, and others. But no are really red flag uh, signaling instead of uh, adding toxicity when we use that. Pay attention that the clinical benefit rate is 64% on this uh, study. What is important is that if we are able to identify the mechanism of resistance uh, before we put a patient on amivantanamat or lacertinib, we are going to find uh, that the overall response rate is going to be higher. And in this case, it's not 36%, it's going to be 47%. And then the clinical benefit ratio that I, I, I told you before, 64%, on those specific ones that we can find a mechanism of resistance, either through the EGFR or additional mechanism like bypass track or MET, is going to be 82%. What is more important today and relevant today is the issue of immunohistochemistry. So from the 45 patients from Chrysalis, those 45 patients were only um, uh, treated before with TKI. There was no uh, chemo involved, just TKI, uh, EGFR. Uh, 20 of them, we have uh, enough uh, uh, tissue to do immunohistochemistry, and when they checked that, uh, there were 10 of these patients that were uh, positive for immunohistochemistry when they used the combined score, the H score, which is EGFR plus MED, uh, they were able to identify that from those 10 uh, patients that were positive, nine of them uh, had uh, a response. Uh, by using immunohistochemistry, and then you can see also the median progression-free survival, which, which was up to 12.5 months. So uh, chrysalis also gives us an idea that perhaps immunohistochemistry could be a biomarker in the fusion. And today, uh, Dr. Benjamin uh, Bisi uh, present uh, this afternoon the cohort D from the chrysalis, which was the bio, uh, biological correlative uh, proving that by using immunohistochemistry format, using a triplos staining, uh, at least 25 cells or above, it was able to predict the response to amivantana plus lacertinib regardless of the mechanism of resistance. So, uh, going back to what we are doing with amivantana lacertinib, this is Mariposa 2 trial, and basically patients with uh, EGFR, exon 19, or F51, they will be randomized. One group receives osimertinib, from the other group will receive sequential. At the end of the day, the last therapy that this patient so was osimertinib, and they will be divided into these uh, three uh, groups uh, using chemotherapy plus amivantanal acertinib followed by maintenance therapy, or just chemotherapy plus amivantanab followed by pain amivantanab, or just chemotherapy followed by pain maintenance. So we'll see. This is Mariposa phase three trial. Other thing that we are trying to do is, okay, let's go to target now a uh, med, and this is targeting med amplification, and this is the, the TATUM trial. Uh, presented and um, published already by our colleague, Dr. Le, uh, Lesia Sequis, and we are going to focus on Part B because Part B is the one that have a patient previously treated with third-generation uh, TKI, in this case, osimertinib. Um, uh, sorry for the graphic, but uh, this is the best that we can do, but there is a lot of data here. Um, uh, there are different groups, as you can see, but we are going to focus that this population 
were heavily pretreated, you can see that there were uh, patients that received one, two, three, or more than three lines of therapy. And then here is the efficacy data uh, on the Part B uh, study. And then you see here that this is a control rate that uh, was uh, significantly high at 75. And then you see the median progression-free survival uh, of 5.4 months in this case. So uh, the disease control rate in, was very uh, good in this uh, phase 1B. So what else we are doing? So we have this uh, antibody drug conjugate called telisotuzumab, and uh, Dr. Goldman presented the monotherapy data, but this also has been already combined with other EGFR TKI. In this case, uh, this is by my colleague here, Dr. Kamish, and this is the phase 1B of teliso verotin plus erlotinib, uh, three different groups, checking on MET-positive, EGFR-positive mutant, or CMET-positive wild-type EGFR, uh, or not having any of those. And then you can see here that we look, or Dr. Ross looked for CMET, H-score. Uh, the MET amplification was also analyzed, and uh, the group uh, also that was exposed to third-generation TKI. And then when you see here, you see that the disease control rate is very, very nice, 85% uh, to 100% across all the three groups, uh, as you can see there, uh, there. And also the PFS was similar between the three, uh, the three groups, combining telisotuzumab plus erlotinib. Now, we are moving forward. So now this is uh, data from Dr. Kamish, uh, 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 teliso plus osimertinib. Uh, so this telisotuzumab, this monoclonal antibody, is directed against MET, okay? And I don't want to go through this monotherapy that Dr. Goldman already presented there, but uh, basically uh, you can see that there was lower activity on the EGFR mutant uh, patient, so uh, we need uh, the MET to be expressed in this population. And this is the, the data from uh, Dr. Goldman that he presented this last year in ASCO, and the definition is on the CMET overexpression, uh, which require at least 25% of the cells to be positive with an intensity of 3 plus. So we have two groups, the high, which is 3 plus, more than 50% cells, and the intermediate group, 25 to 49% of the cells having a 3 stain. And by the way, this was exactly what Dr. Benjamin Bisi from France presented this afternoon. On the, in terms of the biological correlative. And then you see here the overall response rate of telisotuzumab plus osimertinib, 58%. So in summary, you can see here these four groups that we just talked. Amivantanab plus lacertinib, chrysalis, just chemonaif, just exposed to TKI. Then we have the amivantanab lacertinib in patients that have received previous chemotherapy plus TKI, chrysalis 2, the Tatumbi, and then the Teliso uh, uh, Tuzumab plus Osimertinib. And you see here the progression free survival very equal uh, for Teliso, uh, not reported, but then you see the overall response rate uh, very favorable to Teliso plus Osimertinib and uh, the uh, treatment related adverse event very similar to the others. What else are we doing? So we have uh, amplification on MET, and here is the ORCA trial. All this patient has progressed on osimertinib, 17, 17 patients of, of the, in this group. All of them has biopsy just to be sure that they don't have 797S to confer resistance to OSI. They don't have fusion driver or a small cell transformation. And you can see here that the unconfirmed overall response rate using OSI plus abolitinib went up to almost 60%. 
We have Savannah trial, which is abolitinib plus osimertinib. I will talk to that in a few minutes. In site two, which is metamplification by cDNA in blood or fish, and this is OC plus tepotinib. And geometry E was using camaptinib plus OC, but it was stopped by the sponsor. Not related to any safety issue, it's just that the sponsor decided to stop that, that trial. This is a new data. This is coming from the ORCA trial. Uh, on, the, on those patients that progress on OSI, and this was presented by Jonathan Ruiz uh, recently. And uh, you can see here that from the first 174 samples, tissue plus a, a liquid uh, biopsy, 24% of the patient will have met amplification coming from a progression from TKI. Uh, so we go back now to Sabolitini plus OSI. This is Savannah phase two, the one that I just mentioned there. And you can see when the patient has met high, Okay, by immunohistochemistry, the overall response rate is 49%. If there is no MET high by immunohistochemistry, it's a very poor overall response rate. Saffron is a phase three, OSI plus abolitinib versus chemotherapy for patients that have progression on EFR, MET overexpression, or MET amplification, and they will also allow the use of this combination in those patients that receive OSI in the adjuvant setting, meanwhile the patient progressed less than six months on osimertinib in the adjuvant setting. And then this is the inside trial. Uh, basically, the inside trial include patients with fish analysis uh, by tissue or also liquid. You can see that there, is, there are different definitions for copy genes number by tissue and, 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 and blood. Again, as Dr. Goldman mentioned, you can see this overlap is not perfect. Uh, there is no too much correlation. Um, and that was tepotinib plus osimertinib versus tepotinib monotherapy on those patients that uh, uh, progress on OSI. And the overall response rate was 55%, as you can see there, uh, there on those patients that has met amplification in the tissue analysis by fish. And this is the waterfall, very nice on this combination. So in summary, uh, Chrysalis 1 uh, proved that this combination, Avivantana Plolacertinib, will give durable response on those patients that progress on osimertinib. However, when we are able to prove uh, the mechanistic resistance, that overall response goes up. But with a new data that we saw today from uh, Dr. Bisi, it seems that immunohistochemistry analysis could be resuscitated now uh, using this uh, definition uh, also presented by Dr. Goldman last year, 3 plus staining at least 25% cells and above. Uh, more to come on sabolitinib plus uh, osimertinib as well as telisotuzumab uh, uh, plus osimertinib and that uh, uh, continue going uh, there. Uh, I put this in the last uh, line, met immunohistochemistry will need external validation as a biomarker for treatment selection, but today uh, we have uh, this at least on the combination of amivantana plus lacertinib uh, was validated uh, by uh, Dr. Bisi and his team. Thank you. Welcome to this Pure Voice On Demand activity based on a recent live event. This video-based activity comprises three presentations with a panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. So the, what I'm going to try and do, so you feel, probably feel like you've been drinking from the fire hose of MET. So we're, we're going to try and personalize it by, uh, by looking at some patients. And um, fortunately, we have a little bit of celebrity help. So uh, our first case is a 59-year-old Caucasian male movie star. 
And um, occasionally he's seen smoking, but nobody really knows the number of pack years. And unfortunately, he's diagnosed with stage four adenocarcinoma, lung, liver, and nodal sites. He has a concierge doctor, of course, who uh, tells you that he sent a lung biopsy off for molecular testing, and it was EGFR negative, ALK negative, ROS1 negative, BRAF negative, and the PDL1 is 90%. And because, you know, he's heard about the amazing doctor sitting on the panel here, um, he comes for a second opinion. So, uh, guys, what are you going to do? So, I think uh, it's not a rare uh, situation. We um, are happy to see the, the, the famous just like the rest. Um, I think that um, there are times that you feel, uh, due to clinical concerns, that you have to start therapy right away. Um, but uh, ideally, there would be time to get a more broad panel. I think that uh, circulating tumor DNA provides uh, some ability to get a broad panel and do it quickly. Um, ideally, you would, uh, I would like to send both ctDNA and get NGS on the tissue simultaneously, and then you know that you've had every opportunity to identify um, a, a, a driving mutation. If a driving mutation is found, that will really change your therapeutic options. There are times that you do not have time. Uh, the, the safest would be to proceed with chemotherapy alone, give your time to come back with the, the full uh, mutation testing, and then if that ends up negative without a targetable mutation, add in, add in immunotherapy for the uh, second cycle. So you, you'd start with chemo if they were symptomatic and keep the IO in reserve? I think that I think that, that is the purest way to approach it. Part of the challenge here is we don't know how much he smoked. Um, if he was a heavy smoker, I might say worthwhile to just go ahead with chemo IO. But I think uh, if there's real uncertainty, holding off on immunotherapy for one cycle is, is reasonable. And do you have a measure in your head of what you call a heavy smoker? Um, uh, like one, above mo 20 one movie's worth or two movies <laughs> worth? <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> above 20 pack years, I think okay. I, would, I would count. All right. So let's say you do all of that. Um, he goes for a third opinion to Dr. Santos, okay, and he's negative on everything. Okay, so what are you going to treat our celebrity with? Huh. So if everything is uh, negative in this case, um, considering that we uh, check the, um, as you said, the liquid biopsy and everything, as this patient is under genotype, then most likely they will go with chemoimmunotherapy in this, in, in this case. Okay, which is, I think, what they, they did do. Um, Let's touch on a couple of points. So that PDL one of 90%, do you go like, well, hey, you know, that means he's going to respond to immunotherapy and you'd give him immunotherapy alone. You said chemo immunotherapy. And it may be because you forgot the 90% because I slipped it in there. Or is that telling you something else? Well, no, no not really. I mean, uh, your point is valid. I mean, it's 90%. So you have two options, okay? You mentioned, yeah, immunotherapy or chemo immuno. There are many things that we don't know about this patient yet. Um, uh, we have more data. Uh, I don't go. I don't run when I see a PDL1 above 50% right away to give monotherapy. I also use other biomarkers uh, as part of research uh, to to decide what is the best for the patient. And also, depending on how much the tumor burden for the gentleman, okay. if there are too many, uh, too much disease. This is a young gentleman. I think he's 57 years old. I will go in that regards with chemo immuno rather than just immuno alone. Unfortunately, we all, we don't have other things that that we know. If there are other commutations present that may uh, push me to, to, to use uh, chemoimmuno or, or, or perhaps quadruple instead of triplet, okay, the presence of uh, STK11, KIA1, others, we don't know. 
Okay. Where I was getting at from this is, so let's imagine that he only actually smoked a cigarette in that picture, and he was actually a never smoker. PDL one of 90%, Dr. Goldman, does that give you any other clues? So a lot of the driving mutations do upregulate PDL one through other pathways that I don't, that, that don't suggest that it's a biomarker in the same way as in the general lung cancer population. So EGFR, MET, um, ALK, many of those patients may even have 100% PDL one So it, it's really important to do a, a complete job in finding a driving mutation. All of those subgroups I, I just mentioned, you would prefer to start with the TKI um, and, and not jump to an immunotherapy agent, which could complicate TKI options in the future. And where I really want to go with this case is, so let's say, you know, he has had the best molecular testing and it's all negative. He goes on chemoimmunotherapy, has some kind of benefit, and then it stops working. Where do you go to next? What does second-line therapy look like, both outside of a trial and any promising trials? Dr. Goldman. So outside of a trial, I, I feel pretty much directed to docetaxel-based therapy, usually with ramucirumab. Um, there, are, there are other options, gemcitabine, uh, navalbine, venerelbine, certainly. Um, but uh, docetaxel, all of those have their significant drawbacks and toxicity and response rates, 25% uh, max, but, but often significantly lower than that. Um, so clinical trials, this is really an important area of clinical trials for, for patients around the country. Uh, and um, I think one of the big areas of development is antibody drug conjugates. It, it affords uh, the ability to have a, have a targeted um, anti-cancer effect with lower toxicity than most chemotherapies um, and is, is really in some ways a, a new new type of therapy that this patient hasn't had yet. Further immunotherapy after immunotherapy failure is very unlikely to provide benefit. So ADCs, I think, are, are showing a lot of promise. Uh, we discussed telecetuzumab. Uh, trope 2 also is an important target in figuring out how to, how to, how to sequence these and, um, and develop them further is really a big part of our next um, challenge. So let's, well, let's do a thought experiment here. And Dr. Santos, this is going to lead to a question to you. So he's heard about trope 2 ADCs. He's also heard about Teliso V ADCs. Neither of them are licensed, we should be clear. One is pitched as give it to everyone. You don't need to pre-screen. The other is you have to pre-screen. So which one should he go for? Yeah, this is a question that we, we always uh, get in tumor board. Uh, I always believe on, on targets, so I am a target person, so I will uh, prefer to direct, uh, I will direct the therapy if I have the target. So if I have the chance, because as you mentioned, you mentioned TROP2, but there are others uh, that also are coming soon. So I will check for the biomarker and I will be driving by the biomarker, yeah. And well, certainly that fits. I mean, if I remember the TROPE 2 ADCs are running about 20 to 30% like most ADCs, whereas Dr. Goldman or, or my data, I can't remember who, but if you were the high MET, it was maybe a 50 to 60% response yeah. rate. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I was going from. Okay, so that's our first movie star. Um, our second, so we're going to have the, the elderly celebrities here, 92-year-old Caucasian male billionaire investor. Uh, he's a never smoker lived a healthy life, that's why he's 92, um, and he's a billionaire. Um, stage four adenocarcinoma, lung, brain, and nodal sites of disease. He has a concierge doctor too, 
who sent off his lung biopsy for next generation sequencing, and he finds a MET exon 14 skip mutation. We already heard they're more common in the elderly population. Now, what we didn't ask, is there a racial effect? He's a Caucasian. Is, is there an Asian or African-American bias? Not that I'm aware of. Okay, now he has pdl one fifty percent and so that kind of brings up the idea of, okay, so you've got pdl one and you've got a MET target, you know, which one do you prioritize? What do we know about I.O. in the MET setting, Dr. Santos? On the, on the I.O. in the MET, um, on someone like this that never a smoker, I think that this is driving uh, by that overregulation that Jonathan just mentioned. Uh, uh, this is a case in which I will not uh, I just ignore the PL1 in this particular scenario. Okay. Uh, being never a smoker, I will go with a TKI in this case. Would you have a different view if he happened to have been a smoker? Because my understanding is MedEx on 14 can occur in smokers? Yes, in, yeah, in both, yeah. Uh, but to be a, very, a heavy smoker, I, I go more than you, Jonathan. Uh, uh, perhaps. Uh, but the med amplification is a very unique. A, a, a definition and, and, and problem in the structure of the gene that will go with the TKI. You mentioned very briefly about the CBL, that binding site that is missing. I will go with that. Okay, so let's say you do do that. We already touched on this. Um, so we'd already seen from some data, I think you showed with catmatinib and tempotinib, some suggestion that at least for one of the drugs, the response rate differs depending on whether you give it initially or after chemotherapy. So do you have a feel that, you know, if this billionaire comes to see you, are you going to start the TKI's first line or are you going to keep it in reserve? Dr. Golden. So, um, yes, Kapmatinib did show that the first line use really had a, had a significant improvement in, in response rate and PFS, PFS greater than a year and really gets it to, you know, what we're hoping for at least to to reach for our targeted therapies. So I think beginning with, with a TKI, I would use catmatinib, um, uh, is going to be well-tolerated and uh, likely effective with some reasonable durability. I have some patients that have gone out three, four years, so there's that potential for long-term benefit. Um, the, uh, the, there's an additional sequencing question which is interesting and challenging. Relatively easy to go from a TKI to chemoimmunotherapy. The, the TKI uh, half-life is quite short, so it will be out of the system. If you go the other direction with chemoimmunotherapy first, the immunotherapy agent has a half-life you know, uh, several weeks and is, and is measurable you know, out six to nine weeks. In that setting, adding in a TKI adds real toxicity risk. I've had patients with really life-threatening hepatitis in that, in that situation, even after waiting uh, six-plus weeks. So that's an additional reason to think you're more likely to successfully be able to use both therapies if you start with a TKI. All right. Now, this is a billionaire investor. He's controlling your pension fund. He's got brain metastases. Are you going to say to him, don't worry, the TKI is going to work, or do you want to irradiate some of those? I didn't say how many brain metastases, so you can make that up as you wish, Dr. Goldman. So um, a lot depends on how the, the symptoms are related to them. I don't think that we've confirmed uh, CNS activity to the same degree uh, with MET TKIs compared to ALK, uh, certainly, or RET, or even EGFR. Um, there are there's some data we were able to show that there's less CNS pe uh, progression than you might have thought otherwise with capmatinib, for example. So I, I think that there's probably some activity 
maybe not to the same high, high degree that we see with other agents. If this patient has small lesions that are not symptomatic, I'd feel comfortable starting with the TKI, watching closely, being in discussion with radiation oncology. Certainly a small number of lesions can be very adequately and safely treated with stereotactic radiation. And I often do everything I can to put off whole brain radiation. When you say watching closely, does that mean you scan the brain earlier than you might do? I mean, what does that mean? In this case, uh, it depends somewhat on the, on the symptoms, but approximately at eight weeks, I think, of a first repeat MRI. Um, it's, and, and even, you know, and, and some of that is, is talking to the radiation oncologist. Is this a brain stem lesion that would be really problematic? Um, or, or are these small peripheral uh, lesions that, that we don't have to watch quite as closely? Okay. Dr. Santos, you work in Florida, uh, famous for having a more mature population. So uh, what do you think about the side effects of MET-TKIs in the elderly population? Same as in the younger population or different? The, the, the effects of these uh, MET inhibitors uh, are, are similar, but it's more pronounced in elderly patients, uh, especially when they have comorbid condition. There's a lot of patients that have already cardiac issues just to start with, or they are with some kind of medication that... Uh, may make us difficult to treat those, and that is the retention of fluid. This happens regardless. If you use tepotinib or camatinib, it's going to happen. Uh, it's 9, 10 percent uh, grade 3, so you need to be on top of those patients. So always my recommendation is follow those patients very closely as soon as you start the patient on camatinib or tepotinib, especially on the elderly population, so you can find this issue uh, quickly and start to uh, make management against that. Okay. Yeah. I am working your questions into my questions here if you're wondering what's going on. So one of the ones that, let's, let's go back to our first movie star. Let's say you do do your pre-screen for an ADC. When do you do it? Do you wait for Mr. Movie Star to progress in his liver before you do it? Do you have to have a fresh biopsy? I mean, it, it's only in a trial, I get that, but Dr. Santos? Uh, well, you can use archival tissue, you yeah. have it, so there is no need for, for talk about ADC, there is no need to repeat a biopsy to check for uh, the, the med, to, uh, to check for SICAM uh, 5 and others. So you can use archival tissue. That's the data that suggests so far. Um, now, you want to be, I don't know, more aggressive, more scientific. If the patient is progressing, but progressing is slow, there is a lesion that is feasible, you can re-biopsy. On the, on the case that we just discussed, when the patient progresses again uh, on this smoker patient, uh, I will re-biopsy again. So those patients that are on chemoimmuno, if the patient is, quote, stable, is progressing, but is asymptomatic, and there is a lesion that I can uh, biopsy, I re-biopsy all my patients. Okay. Yeah, at progression. Dr. Goldman, when do you do your kind of ADC screens? So I think you have the opportunity to use the diagnostic specimen, the baseline specimen, at a time when there's not a rush. You're looking ahead. You're thinking about what your future options are. I think it's, it's a discussion to have carefully with the patient, but most of the time, I think patients are pleased that you're thinking about them carefully, pleased that you're thinking ahead, you're developing a strategy, and you're ready if something were to look worse. The, um, there is a challenge that, that MET is, it can be upregulated on resistance. Partly, as we discussed, it, is, it does have resistance um, capabilities. So that, that re-biopsy on, at the time of progression does have a little bit of a, of a bump, a, a slight increase in the, in the positivity rate of high MET expression. That might be 
nevertheless, I think testing the diagnostic specimen has some real utility if there's sufficient tissue. So kind of similar but different questions. So let's say it's kind of mixed between these last two patients. So should you wait for the next generation sequencing to come back to determine who you should do MET-IHC for if you've got access to the MET-ADC trial? There's, um, I, I, so the driving mutations, if you, don't, if you don't have your NGS yet, will really put the patient into certain categories. It, it may be that MET is still a useful target for that patient, but um, if there's a driving mutation in most cases, or in many cases at least, we'd like to do MET targeting in combination with targeting the, the primary driving mutation. But what if it was a MET, so, you know, as we saw with our billionaire investor, if it was a MET exon 14 skip mutant, are you more or less likely to do an AEC pre-screen directed to MET for your plan B? Uh, so um, w the, that brings up a lot of interesting points. One is getting back to the, all the testing that I talked about, which I know is a lot of information. There's imperfect overlap um, with these different categories. So you can have a MET mutation, and you're only about... Uh, only about half of those will have high MET overexpression. MET amplification is relatively tighter with MET overexpression, but not 100%. So to the best of our understanding right now, I would say that the, the ADCs are, are really working on overexpression. And so that's really what you should be looking at. If you're thinking ahead, what are you going to do for this patient in the future? I think a MET... Uh, mutated patient or a MET-amplified patient may be a great patient for a MET-ADC, but in order to know, you should do the immunohistochemistry testing. Yeah, and if I can just share what I do. So I think the key thing with all the pre-screens, you mentioned CCAM5 and any of them, is not to overthink it. If you walk through the door in my clinic, we talk about your first-line therapy, and I get you to sign a whole bunch of pre-screen forms because everybody's going to need a plan B. If one of them is positive, we'll talk about it. If you have a MET-directed genomic driver, MET amplification, even at low levels, or MET-X114, absolutely you're going to be screened because I know protein is going to be there. If you don't, like Brad, then I'm still going to do it because it might still be there. In fact, one of my best responders was actually a KRAS mutant patient who had MET protein expression. He had a two-year uh, response. We're going to segue into our last case, which is also allowing me to bring in some of these other questions about uh, best supporting actor, so MET as a secondary vulnerability. So this is Li Bingbing, if you don't know, who is China's uh, most famous female movie star. Uh, but in the purpose of this, she is representing herself as in the movie The Meg, which is a terrible movie, but she plays a 50-year-old Asian female giant shark expert. She's a never smoker. She has stage four adenocarcinoma, lung, bone, and brain sites and an exon 19 deletion. pdl one as we heard, can be sometimes very high in the driver oncogenes, but we ignore that. She goes on Osimertin in first line, does great for three years, makes a couple more movies, and then she has oligoprogression in her lungs. So she now comes to see the great Dr. Santos, you know, and uh, what would you do? Well, this is a patient that has a driver mutation on OSI, um, partial remission, um, but three years doing well. First thing is to re-stage her from a molecular standpoint. So um, I do liquid biopsy first, okay, and prepare the patient for CT-guided biopsy of a lesion that is feasible, feasible. And the reason for that is because we need to remember that when we do the liquid biopsy, the technology that we have there is just based on DNA, uh, NGS, 
And you very well mentioned that DNA, NGS can miss a couple of things that we don't want to miss. So we can do next generation sequencing DNA and RNA in the tissue. So the first thing that we'll do is liquid biopsy and be ready uh, in a week or perhaps in five days, depending on the platform that you use, uh, be ready to send the patient for a CT guided biopsy. If I don't get that answer why the patient is progressing on osimertinib. Let's say you do that, and let's say on a whim you also send off met immunohistochemistry, or you do send it off within the context of a clinical trial. It's interesting you mentioned Dr. Besse's presentation today that the cut point for met immunohistochemistry that amavantanab is now looking at in terms of predicting who will respond to that drug is exactly the same cut point that Talisovia has been using. So let's say now you've got two trials you can choose from. Talisov, keeping the osimertinib going, or amavantamab, which one would you choose? I will go with uh, teliso-osimertinib for the reason that, number one, uh, the overall response rate that you saw there is the best that we have so far. Well, we don't like to compare you know, clinical trial to clinical trial, but it's, it's really high, 58%, and the toxicity Almost is the same like amivantanal acertinib, as you can see there, in that 25-30%. I will go on that. Teliso osim. So, just to clarify, so in Dr. Bessay's presentation, if you were met IHC positive, they had a 60% response rate, so comparable response rate. But you're right, maybe different toxicity. Dr. Goldman, how do you compare the toxicity of amivantanib and lazertinib, we're in kind of pie-in-the-sky comparisons here, versus teliso v and osimertinib? I think they're both very promising. I think that the, um, the Taliso V uh, has the, um, I think, you know, the, the, the potent cell killing of an ADC, I think, has some appeal to it. Um, in the end, we're really going to have to look at, at how some of the other endpoints look. I, I think, you know, uh, Dr. Bessie's presentation was, was very interesting. It's not a lot of patients kind of, you know, hot off the press in a good way, but also requires some, some review. So I think based on the information I think has been fully reported and, and reviewed, I would go with Taliso V. It'll be interesting to see. It's exciting we have these two good options. It gets confusing because you have these continuous variables. We've talked about the level of MET overexpression that might be relevant. What level, out of all of those presentations, Dr. Santos, what is the level of MET amplification that will make you think that they might need a TKI, or that MED is driving their secondary resistance. Or oh, med, uh, MED amplification. Yeah, can you give me a, like a one-sentence a one answer? Copy gene number five and above. Okay. And the answer is you're going to be right and wrong, because <laughs> if it's 4.9, is that, you know, who knows, right? Um, if you get to the point where um, you were going to go into some other therapy, let's say you were going to go into chemo, do you keep the TKI going and the osimertinib going, or do you stop it? We saw the data from yes. Japan today where they stopped the osimertinib and then you had like 100 days of chemo and then they went back on the osimertinib. Dr. Goldman? You know, I think that in general, keeping the TKI going is, um, has some appeal to it. Um, I, I, don't, I don't do chemo. I don't, I don't do a defined period of chemo in that way. Um, I think that uh, at the same time, it's never... It's never been shown that the TK ongoing really is uh, specifically aiding long-term outcomes, uh, but CNS control is probably better, and um, 
and I do think you sort of leave yourself open to get onto other trials a little bit better. But I, I, don't, I think it's hard to have a hard and fast rule on that. I'd really like to thank my faculty who've just been fantastic under lots of pressure. Thank you to you too. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.